Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Almost three years ago, Jason Clausen lost his wife to stage four cancer. He and his two boys struggled to find happiness again until they turned their pain into happiness by sharing sunshine boxes. And we will find out what he means by that. Jason, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Oh, this is a pleasure. I'm happy to be here and see what we can do to help help spread goodness in the world. So thanks for having me, Andrea. Of course. So I am so, so sorry for your loss. And I always cherish when I get the opportunity to speak to a caregiver because I was a caregiver. And and so it's very special for me. So would you take us back to the beginning of what happened, how your wife was diagnosed, and also how old were your sons at the time? All those are awesome questions. <laughs> um, so I, I always like to start out my story by saying me and my two boys and my wife were living a really good life. About four years ago, my wife came to me and said, I have a lump in my stomach and uh, I don't know what it, what, what, it, what it is. So we checked it out and I said, let's not freak out. Let's give it a week. And How big week, was the lump? Uh, it was it was probably about this <laughs> about size, size, size of, of a baseball. Size of a baseball, yeah. Wow, and you could feel it and see it as well. Uh huh. Yeah. Wow. And, and then we came back a week later, and I felt that it had grown. <gasps> so that that's when we got concerned and worried and said, "Oh no." Um, let's put our our life on pause. It's going good. Let's figure this out so we can get back to the way that we were living life. Um, the, the problem with that is going to doctors and scans and blood works. We, we at the beginning, we were never finding any kind of answers of what it was. So obviously this was concerning and, and worrying. Um, and then we went in for a, a, another scan where there were spots all over my wife's body. And then our doctor says, you need to go and talk to uh, this oncologist surgeon and see what's going on. So we went up there, talked to her, and she goes, the best thing is we need to go and do, a, uh, we need to do exploratory surgery and figure out what's going on. So, so we no her, diagnosis yet? No, the blood work came back normal. There's spots in the body, but there's, we don't have a definitive diagnosis. <laughs> so it's like our, our life is on hold and, and obviously we're worried and concerned of course. that what's going to happen? What, what is our future going to hold? So, and, and, and we went up to the hospital, we had exploratory surgery. I'm waiting in the waiting room with my my wife's parents, my sister, and her best friend. 
and and waiting on pins and needles about what's going to happen. And the doctor came in and looked at me and said, Jason, I'm so sorry, but your wife has stage four colon cancer. And and someone that is she didn't have any warning signs or family history. And we felt like we were doing good in the community and doing so much good to help people. And when when the doctor said that, my life just I <laughs> I, I was frozen in time yeah. and I was thinking, how are we going to get through this? What like how are we going to pay for this? How am I going to tell my boys like? How are we going to fight this? How long does she have? And my brain is just going like this. But I just, I just remember that moment of hearing that. And my life was altered forever at that point when she told me that. And we cried. And then we said, well, we're going to go back to the recovery room. And I'm going to come in and see Valerie and tell her the news. So we went back in. She came down. And we're all around and Valerie said, what's going on? <laughs> this yeah. must be, must be bad. Must be terrible. Yeah. And, and the doctor said, again, you have stage four colon cancer. Here's my recommendations. And again, I was just like, so many thoughts and emotions and feelings were just like coming up all over. And the doctor left. Any signs except for that huge mass? Nothing. 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 Wow. So it was just like out of the blue, out of nowhere. So as you can imagine, like my, my head's going like this and the doctor's leaving. And I just said, no, I need some answers. I, so I ran down the hall to the doctor and I said, doctor, I need some answers. I, I, I just started peppering her with questions because I needed to figure this out because I'm the, I'm the father, I'm the caregiver. Um, it, it fell a lot on my shoulders and, and she goes, Jason, you'll be okay. And then she looked at me and said the words that has forever changed me. She goes, cancer has a way of enhancing your life. <laughs> and, 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 and that, at that moment in my life, I did not want to hear that. That is not the time. Oh my God. And and obviously oh. <laughs> I I was I was angry. Of course. I was frustrated and I was like, I don't want my life to be enhanced. <laughs> it was good. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My life was good before. So I, I didn't need this in my life. So I just and, and I, I, I remember that moment just being again angry at God, angry at sure. the doctor angry at the situation i'm getting emotional it's okay. oh it's okay just just thinking like why like i'm helping people at this time i'm working as a clinical director in a recovery program so i felt like i am doing so much good in the world helping people how come this has to happen to my family at this point in my life it just didn't seem fair. <laughs> how, how did your wife handle it? And what was her name? Her name was Valerie. That's right. You said Valerie. How did she handle it? Obviously, she she cried a lot. But she looked at me and she said, Jason, 
this is not supposed to happen to us. I'm 38. Oh. I have I have two kids and I'm and we still have life to live. She goes, this happens to people that are older and have lived a long life, not young families that still have life to live. So she was frustrated and upset and just saying, okay, let's do what we can to fight this because my boys still need a mom. So how, we're going to. How old were they at the time? They were six and 11. Okay, so 11-year-old's old enough to understand a little bit. Yeah, yeah. What did you say to your sons? <laughs> I was I was so afraid to tell them. Yeah. Um, it was, I remember sitting down with my boys and just saying, guys, mom has, <laughs> I, I was just scraping for the, the right words to say. And I said, I said, mom is not feeling very good. And she has to go start seeing the doctor a lot more. And she has cancer. Um, I was, for me as a father, what I wanted to do to teach my boys is I didn't want to shy away from what was going on because I wanted them to know, but I wanted them to ask questions um, and give them as much information as they need, as they wanted. I didn't want to flood them with information that wasn't going to help them. But I said, mom has cancer. Mom's going to start doing some treatments. What questions do you guys have? And I left it up to them to ask what was bothering them or what was concerning them. And, and they could get those, those questions resolved. And then when they were done, they were done. I didn't push the issue. I didn't say this, 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 and this. I just met them on their terms to right. be able to help them walk the path that will help them be um, in a good spot to, to work through this. And I felt that that was helpful, um, especially for small children. We're so worried about how they'll react. And I think as parents, we want to shelter them from information. And I just was like pretty transparent with them. But I wanted Did they them. ask questions? They did. Mm -hmm. Do you remember any of those questions? Uh, they said, uh, is she going to have to go to the hospital a lot? Yes. Good question. Is she going to have to take medicine? I said, yes. Um, are we going to have to um, move? <laughs> okay, that's a very specific question. And how interesting. Are we going to have to... Um, um, is she going to die? And um, and I I said no, uh, not at this point. But what we're going to do, guys, is we are going to do our best to do what the doctor said, and follow all the recommendations to keep fighting, and to be able to do what we can to fight this. And I said. Uh, God is going to be on our side. We're going to pray and he's going to help us walk this path and get through what we need to get through as a family. 
So oh my goodness, you're making me tear up for the people who are listening and can't see my face right now. Wow. <laughs> so what was the course of treatment? What did you and Valerie decide to do in that moment at the beginning? I mean, anybody that has never gone through that, it's just like you're, you got stage four, you just want to listen to the doctor. So we started chemo treatment and that was the recommendation. She's in stage four. We wanted to fight this. So we did, we did chemo. And um, I think the hardest part about this is we did everything the doctor said. We studied, recommend, we did everything. But every time we'd go in for a scan or an evaluation, things didn't get better. Mm. And, and, th and that was even more frustrating and upsetting because Again, like we felt like we were doing well in the community with people and friends and helping people in recovery. And we felt like that could give us a little bit of a break, but um, still after everything we do, we come back, no change, no change. So the hard thing is you build yourself up. <laughs> we're gonna do this, your energy, and then you get depleted when you get right. bad news. So you had to build yourself up again, and then you'd get depleted. So it's such an exhausting process to be able to right. manage this, feel the emotions after bad news, try to be resilient. It's, it's an exhausting process that went on for, um, we fought it for eight months. We were told two to three years but we fought it for eight months and then finally it just wasn't enough. And my wife, we were saying goodbye to my wife at nine months at her funeral and thinking, oh. Oh how did we, how, how did we get to this point where we were living such a great life and all of a sudden we get this out of the blue news and then I'm sitting at the funeral saying goodbye with two boys and figuring out like, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? How am I going to yeah. pick up the pieces? How am I going to be the hybrid parent to my wonderful boys? How am I going to still work? How am I going to still survive? And it was yeah. just like, I, I just, in my brain, there's a picture of me just sitting at the grave with my arms around my boys, just going, I, I don't know what to do. Yeah. I want to. <laughs> and, and, and Andrew, and, and I'm the therapist that has <laughs> helped, helped so many people it's through traumatic events. It's different when it happens to you though. You know Ex that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I want to go back to what you said about no change, because in my book, I talk about, I say, fuck no change. Sorry, Apple. This is a clean podcast, but just for a second, it's not. Um, and because I kept hoping over and over there would be a change mm -hmm. and I won't go into my story, but I held on to that so tight. And then when there was a change after four rounds of chemo, the change was in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And I beat myself up because I was like, oh my God, I wasn't specific enough. You know, <laughs> I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so I just got so upset yeah. that. Finally, we heard there's a change 
And it never occurred to me that it, that it would go in the negative direction. Yeah. It, it never did. Wow. Wow. And, and, and so I, I do feel you. I, I really, really do. Um, tell me about the decision to stop treatment because that's not an easy decision to make. And often it's more difficult for patients because their families want them to keep fighting. So yeah. what was that like for Valerie? I mean, we fought up until the bitter end and I just remember she was, we went up to the hospital, the Huntsman hospital here in Salt Lake and just, she wasn't getting better. She was sick all the time. And we started spending more time um, in, in with the doctors than we were outside. So the poor quality of life. And we just went up there and we could just kind of see it in the, just deteriorating. And uh, the doctor came in, talked to her. And finally, I remember being in the, the hospital room and I wrote on the piece of paper to my mother-in-law that had walk this path with us. And, and I said, what does the doctor say timeline she has? And she said, she wrote on it two weeks. She has two weeks to live just based on how she was presenting and the cancer. And I just, <sighs> just that moment of pity, like my, my time with my wife was coming to an end. And, and in that moment, you're just say, I got to maximize the time that I have to be able to, um, make, make it, make, make the time last as much as possible. So we went home, we were telling people two weeks. Did she get and, on hospice at that point? Yeah, she was on yeah. hospice, but, um, the, the funny thing is, is, People would come over and visit with her, <laughs> and uh, the person that's dying as in cancer was the one that was consoling <laughs> those that were like starting the grieving process. And um, what's what's ironic is the doctor gave us two weeks, um, but because she wanted to um, care for people and talk. That was, and, and what made my wife so great that she cared about people was the thing that decreased her life. And um, all that time she spent with people and saying goodbye and grieving. What do you mean? Her. What do you mean decreased her life? Well, we were given two weeks mm -hmm. and she only made six days. Oh, so, but. Why do you feel that that is attributed to her caring? Is it because she was giving so much of her time and energy to other people? She loved people and she, she cared about people so much. People would come over and she would, she said, I, I want to, I want to spend time with them. Mm. So she would go out there and sit with them. And then she like, okay, I'm exhausted. And then I would, I would be the one hearing being in the bed saying, are you okay? She goes, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm like, Valerie, you don't have to do this. And yeah, she goes, don't. I, but I, I want to, I want to be able to spend time with people that I care and love about. And, um, and, and, and for me, like wanting to say no, 
but that's that's who she was and that's what made her so great is wanting to help and and spend her last moments with family and friends and and being able to talk with them that was just that's that's what exhausted her and and that was some of her her lasting moments here on this earth to be able to spend with people but I don't think she would have it any other way. So <laughs> let me ask you this. So often when a parent dies, the biggest fear is that the other parent's going to die. So did that come up for your boys? And if so, how did you handle it? Yeah. Uh, again, I'm, I'm open and transparent as much as my boys will ask me. And I remember shortly after the funeral, they just said, dad, are you going to die now? Yeah. And if you die, then where do we go? Who are we going to be with? Like, who's going to take care of us? Yeah. And, and you could see the wheels start turning like, and I could see like fear in their eyes that if dad leaves, then where are they going to go? So we had a couple of conversations about that, about, I think I was like, I'm, I'm not dying, guys. <laughs> like, I'm fighting. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to be in your life um, as much as I can. Um, but I said, if something happens to me, like, we have so many amazing people in our family that would be able to care for you guys and be a part of your life. I, I wanted to normalize like the worst case scenario for my boys. So, so that, that thought of that they didn't know was going to happen. Right. So I try to normalize that, say, Hey, um, aunt, you could go hang out with and be and live with aunt Julie. You love her. She's great. And then, then that, then it started to lighten the load and they realized, okay, that is the worst case scenario. And it doesn't seem that bad. Okay, let's go back to dad and hey, let's we're gonna be this together. We're a family now. This is our family. And we're gonna we're gonna work together to be able to heal together. And that seemed to be like our mantra is like, we're here together, we're gonna get through this together. So how how was your experience as a caregiver and a spouse, a husband? How is it different from Valerie's as a patient? You mean the caregiver? Yeah. How was your experience different than Valerie's? Because I hear from so many patients and survivors who say that it was much harder on their families than it was on them because they focused on getting well. That's all they could really focus on. And yet as the primary caregiver, you have just this overwhelm of responsibilities, right? Yeah. So I, how is I, it different? I think the caregiver is one of the hardest roles you'll have to play um, because a lot of attention and support is happening to the patient. Right. But again, the caregiver has to take care of the patient, has to care for the, the kids, the responsibilities, and it's just an exhausting process that you're never able to shut it off. <laughs> and, and I remember like 
okay, I'd take my nightly routine was to make sure uh, uh, Val's taken care of, she's comfortable, she has her medicine, tuck her in, tuck the boys in, make sure they're fed, take care. And then I would, my brain couldn't shut off and I'd just be sitting on the couch, just scrolling through my phone because I couldn't shut it off. And I just remember just, I would just crash out of exhaustion. And then I would wake up in the morning and then I, I do it all over again. And, and I, I'd get them to school, take care of my wife. And then I would have to go into do therapy. <laughs> and, and I felt like, I was like, I never get a break. Like I'm just emotionally, mentally, physically exhausted. Yeah. And, and for me, um, from a male's perspective is this, this mantra where I have to be the strong person. They need someone strong. So I put on a mask of masculinity where I hide my emotions and I felt like everybody else needed help, but I needed to be strong for everybody else. So those times I would lay in the, on the couch I would just cry because I was all by myself. I could take off this mask and put it on right. the coffee table and I could just cry. And then in the mornings, I'd put it back on and just try to be strong. Like that's what people needed. How do you look at your life differently? Because you said several times that you guys had a great life. Things were going well. And, and then this happens and, and didn't see it coming at all. How do you look at your life differently now? I think, I mean, wearing that mask for a long time, even after my wife passed away and even nine months into still trying to manage my life, I, I got to a breaking point where the pain of wearing the mask was worse than the pain I was feeling inside. And I remember leaving for a lunch and I was in a parking lot and I I sent out like kind of a plea for my family my friends my support people in my church I said guys I'm struggling can you come over to my house and and just hear how my life is going and <laughs> I just I just threw out a Hail Mary and, <laughs> And I was hoping people would show up. And I remember that night getting knocks at the door and people just poured into my house and they were sitting in my living room. And I finally took a deep breath and I said, okay, I'm, I, I'm giving myself permission to take off this mask because it's too heavy. And in a sense, I called my own intervention and I, I poured out my heart and I told people... You. I told people how I was feeling and how hard it was. And in that sense, I gave people to come into my circle and start helping me. A lot of people want to help, but a lot of people don't know how to help. And I okay. think, and I think what I learned was until you can open up your heart and, and vulnerability invites vulnerability, then, then that's where all the help began to come. And as we talked about how hard life was, 
what we did, what I did is I, I came, we made a team captain that was going to be able to help me walk this journey. And then everybody in this room took a responsibility that they were good at and they could help me with. So when things, when things got really difficult and hard, all I had to do was text one word to my team captain. And then my team captain could text the group and they would immediately come in and help me take the weight off and walk through this journey until I was strong enough to do some of those responsibilities. I mean, my parents were coming over to do my laundry. My neighbor's mowing my lawn. People are bringing me food. Someone's taking the kids. Someone's texting me. And it just became this amazing healing team that as hard as it got, it I could get through it because I invited people into the circle. And, and in that moment, I was thinking, man, the opposite of grief is connection. <laughs> like true connection to help me through my grieving process because I wanted to be alone. And until I invited people in, that's when things got better. And that's when I thought, you know what? I can do this and I can create some momentum that will be sustainable um, and I can start to be happier again. I want to give you so much credit because that's not something I was able to do. And by the time I finally sort of did, it was almost too late. Mm -hmm. It's almost too late Yeah, for me and, and, and for my friendships. Uh And, and so I I really give you a lot of credit for just knowing, um, and putting that together in such a productive way that helped you. Thanks. (laughs) And no, really wasn't easy, but yeah. yeah. What is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning when you and Valerie heard that diagnosis? Um, that's a good question. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff. Um, I I think for me, someone sitting down and saying how hard it is to be a caregiver, and here's some recommendations that will help you as you go through this would just be, what has it been just awesome? Yeah. Because I was just doing the best I can, and um, it's, it's sad to think that people, I mean, this, hopefully this doesn't come across as selfish, but people come over and visit my wife and that's great. But like people don't come over to see the caregiver and, and what I do now, when I go visit people, I go right to the caregiver and I just go, how are you doing? I just, I spend time, I spend time with them. I go, let's go to lunch. What do you need? How can I help you? And I just, I I always go to the caregiver first and then I go to the the patient because because I know, and I know how hard it is. And I just try to give back to the caregiver because in a sense, if I give back to the caregiver, they'll be boosted up and they can take care of the patient. So, yeah. Are you still a therapist by the way? Yeah, I still do therapy. Mm -hmm. Did it change your practice at all? Having this experience with your wife? I mean, it changed the way I see people and talk to people. Um, Can you give us an example? I think, I mean, 
when I hear people go through hard things, I, I'm more understanding and empathetic. And I think in those sessions, as I talk to clients, as they've gone through trauma and life altering events, um, I believe I can feel the emotion that they're going through <laughs> and, and I'm not comparing stories, but I can, I, I think I have a deep relationship with my, my clients because I can draw upon my experience and my emotion and I can connect with their emotion and, and, and we are on a deeper level so I can ask harder and more in-depth questions because of my experience. And I feel like, um, I'm able to help clients better because I can connect with them on that emotional level versus more just on a surface level. And, yeah. and I can connect with them because I'm like, Hey, it's, I walked a hard path. Let's, let's do this together. <laughs> Let me help you tell me what you need. And, and yeah. I can, and, and it, and I really felt like I, I've changed and, um, I enjoy therapy more because I can connect on an emotional level and be wow. able to help them through that process uh, because it's like, oh, I know what it feels like to lose someone or I know what it's like to get life altering news or I know what it feels like to be lonely or I, I know what it feels like to to feel like hopeless. Like, so I, I get it. And now I can ask the questions of how it felt and I can ask them to help them walk that path. Oh, that's so good. Jason, if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U S what would it be and why? Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, my, my heart is in mental health and finding a way to be able to give some people an opportunity to have someone to talk to. Yeah. And I, I mean, if we could provide free therapy for everybody, um, whether they take it or not, it's really up to them. But finding some people to be able to talk to and find that connection and someone that can walk that path, I think it'd make a significant difference in people's life. Um, and, and I'm speaking from someone that has been in those rooms where having someone that is genuinely want to listen and help has made all the difference in their life, all the difference in their spouse's life and their kid's life. Um, but we don't get that. And a lot of people are walking around with masks and there's a stigma of mental health. And it's like, let's just normalize. We all need someone to talk to in therapy yeah. and, and, and provide a service that can help everybody and and, and so that people can connect on deep levels and then give them permission to connect with people outside of therapy rooms so we can help heal each other together. Jason, are you ready to lighten things up with the Thriver rapid fire questions? Sure. Okay. <laughs> I'm an open, I'm an open book. <laughs> okay. Beach, desert, or mountains? Uh, mountains from Utah. I know I had you pegged for mountains, but I was like, well, maybe not. Okay. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Uh, Beach Boys. What is one word that best describes you? Resilient. <laughs> before, you, before you die, what is the last song you went to hear? 
Um, I'm on top of the world by Imagine Dragons. <laughs> what about the last meal you want to eat? Uh, I want to eat banana cream pie. <laughs> and what about the last person or people you will see? I just, I want to be surrounded with my family and people that love me. Um, mixed in with some of the some of the clients that I've made a difference in my life, I would just love to be just see them and oh. just be a part of their life. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's amazing. And what about the last words you will speak? Um, lean, lean into the storm because mm. that's because that's where the most growth will come. Yeah. Oh, that's good. And aside from Cancer U, what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I want you to tell us first about these sunshine boxes. Let's start there. Um, so after I lost my wife and struggling through it and a therapist, I found there wasn't a lot of resources for people. <laughs> um, and the the way the sunshine baskets came about is me and my boys actually uh, made a lemonade stand. And what we were going to do is create these baskets of yellow sunshine stuff. And we were going to raise $100 to put together two of these baskets that we would deliver to people that have gone through cancer or hard time. So our lemonade stand raised $1,500. And then we created 25 baskets. We call them sunshine baskets. And me and my boys began to deliver them to people that were struggling. And this was our medicine, our way of healing. Yeah. So we, we show up and we give them this basket and my boys are talking to their kids. And I'm saying, it's gonna be okay, it sucks. And I'm helping them get through that process. What's in this mysterious basket? What's in it? Well, the original basket was just yellow socks and candy and soap and just fun, comfortable stuff. That's what we were delivering. We're just bringing sunshine to people. But um, what this has evolved into is creating things in the box that help people heal Rather than just fun, happy stuff, which is great, I wanted things in the box that's going to help people get through the grieving process. So in this box, there's, there's a journal that helps you write out some of those emotions and feelings. There's a pair of socks. There's candy. There is uh, uh, thank you cards that are already pre-written, so you send them to people. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> And, and one of my favorite things in there is a deck of support cards. And what's on these support cards is pre uh, things to say to a person that is grieving. You hand them to your friends and then they text you or when they interact with you, they know exactly what to say to you to help you walk through that process. Because people, they want to do something 
but they don't do and they get in a support vacuum where they just do nothing and disappear. Yeah, that can happen and I, for sure. And I and I wanted to give people the tools to be able to help you walk that journey and to help them become happier and healthier again. So and there's other things, but I just it's a box to be able to help people get out of that grief and help them get unstuck so that they can become happier again. How can and, people uh, find out more about the boxes and or get can, one? hopekit.com. Okay. And uh, it has my story. It has our resources on there where you can get a box for grief. There's a box for cancer. And then there's a mental health box coming that will be available to people. Oh, that's amazing. And if people want to get in touch with you, is that the best place? Uh, my email is jason at hopekit.com. Feel free to reach out. Feel free to see what we can do to help um, share the message of helping people and connections and creating healing teams. I've just finished up a, a booklet that's called the Healing Team Booklet that helps you set your own healing team up so that you can nice. become happier and healthier again. So nice. yeah, I, th I think it the more that we help people, the more that we're going to be happier. So um, it's, it's my gift and I believe it's a, I am grateful for what life has been given me. And as I look back on it, what the doctor says, now I can say cancer has a way of enhancing your life, but it's really up to you about what you do with it and, uh, grow through it, learn from it turn it into something that can change lives. And that's what's important today. Oh, thank you so much. So we will make sure to put that in the workshop and the show notes. Jason, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your and Valerie's story. Thank you. Such an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.